Hello listeners and welcome to the latest Arcade Attack podcast. It's Adrian here. Today I'm joined by Ed Freeze. He was the chief game guru at Microsoft for many, many years. He oversaw the development of Xbox. He took over companies such as Ensemble, Rare and Bungie. He talks about Halo. He talks about so much more. So guys, sit back and enjoy a great chat with a real retro gaming legend. Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Hello and welcome back to the Arcade Attack podcast. I've got a really special guest with me today. I've got Ed Freeze. Now, he is well known for his work at Microsoft, Xbox, and loads more in between. So thank you, Ed, for your time today. Really do appreciate it. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. The pleasure's all, all, all ours, trust me. Um, before we get into the real sort of nicks and crannies and how you got into Microsoft and uh, and Xbox, and for example, and, and that sort of area, but what was your earliest and fondest memories of video games while you are growing up, if you don't mind me asking? Is that two questions or one? Earliest and fondest? Or? <laughs> they are two questions to be fair, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up, I, I was, you know, really lucky. Both my parents were pretty technical. They were both engineers. And so my dad worked at Boeing and he would bring home these programmable calculators. And so that was probably the first thing that I kind of experienced as a game, these kind of high-tech calculators that were thousands of dollars and had little mag tapes that would run through them that HP made. And there were actually some games for those. So playing something like Lunar Lander, you know, at the time when people were actually landing on the moon, you know, in the in the 70s was was pretty exciting. So that's probably earliest for me. Uh, fondest, uh, I'm sure as we talk more, you'll hear that I'm an old school Atari guy, and yep. uh, and so, uh, you know, I think one of the be- the greatest games of all time really is uh, a game called Mule for eight bit. Atari for the Atari 800 series. So we could talk about Mule all day, but you know. <laughs> uh, is it true though? I know we talk about the Atari a bit now. Is it true you created a Frogger clone? Was that the first game you ever made? And was that kind of obviously inspired by the classic Atari game? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I was uh, when I was in junior high and then going into high school, the first personal computers were just coming out, and so you know I could. And it was also the time when the arcades were just starting to really happen. So, uh, you know, I'd get on my bike and ride to the bowling alley and play some of the first video games and uh, ride to Radio Shack and play the tier, play on the TRS-80 computer that they had. And mm. when I went to high school, I uh, was lucky to, enough to be at a high school where they had some of the early uh, uh, Apple II computers. And so that was started playing on those. And then... Um, I think my dad just figured out that this was something I, I was going to get into, and um, and so got me an Atari 800, which was just changed my life, kind of uh, Christmas present, you know. Um, and so yeah, I just started to program it uh, first, working in BASIC, and then um, kind of slowly moving into assembly language um, to try to make things run as fast as I saw in the arcade. And actually, the first assembly language game I wrote was uh, my, my version of the game Space War, okay. uh, sort of a classic from the arcade of two ships 
around fighting around the sun with gravity. And so I made that. And then, um, and then the second one I did was a Frogger clone called Froggy. And yeah, that was where I actually really got into the game business. Cause what, I mean, if you don't mind me just talking, yeah, you're not, please go ahead. <laughs> I mean, basically what happened, you know, I'm a, I'm a high school kid. Uh, I'm in love with computers. I'm just spending all my free time, you know, uh, just programming. And um, and uh, and I make this game. Um, and oh, oh, and by the way, I'm working at night. So I'm working at a pizza place, um, <laughs> which was nice because they had a few machines there. A Galaxian in particular, which oh, was, classic. you know. So I would like sometimes I'd close close down the place at 1 a.m. and then spend another hour playing Galaxian. But anyway, um, so yeah, uh, so I make the Frogger clone called Froggy, um, and it and you know this is pre-internet, right? So yes. how do games get around? Well, um, you know I just gave it to some friends and they gave it to some friends and somebody put it on some bulletin boards and. The bulletin boards were always local. I mean, you had to just make a call to call into your local bulletin board. Um, but then, you know, some people would, you know, move stuff from one bulletin board to the other. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It, it made its way down to California and a company there called Ramox saw the game and they were uh, looking for programmers and um, and somehow they tracked it back to me. And this is w- the real mystery because it just said buy Eddie Freeze on it. and. Yeah. So how do you, in 1981, find a, a teenager named Eddie Freeze in another part of the country? I mean, I, I really have no idea how they tracked me down. That's amazing. But they, but they did. Yeah, they found <laughs> me. I'm like, you know, okay, yeah, I could, you know, offered offered me a job working for them. Um, you know, it was that or, or keep making pizzas. And so it sounded good to me. Um, and yeah, and so I started to work for them uh, kind of end of high school and then for the first couple of years of college. Did you actually think you wanted to work in the industry? Was was that your sort of big plan, or I know it kind of it kind of sprung <laughs> the opportunity sort of went into your lap a little bit, but was that always in you at the back of your mind? Well, I knew I loved to program mm. by then, and I was sure I wanted to do that, and and I I loved games too, um, so that seemed like uh, the ultimate thing, right? Yeah. But. It also seemed sort of like an unattainable goal. Like, how many game programmers were there in the world back then, you know? And uh, so, and then, well, then the big thing happened, which was, you know, I made three games for them uh, through uh, 1984, and then the game industry crashed in 84, Mm, right? So all the retro people know about that, but a lot of other people don't. and so um, I was halfway through college getting my computer science degree and my the company I was working for, the game company I was working for went away, uh, which meant the money that I was making to go to college <laughs> went away. <laughs> so, so I had to get a, I had to get a real job. So, you know, I, I, I talked to the people in the computer science department, the little school I went to in New Mexico into, um, into letting me, um, be one of the people running one of their VAX computers. And, uh, I was worked as a system administrator, basically the last two years I was at, at, at college working on, uh, this 4.2 BSD Unix VAX system. Anyway, um, so yeah, so that's uh, so then I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to be a game programmer, but I yeah. I can be a programmer, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> better than nothing, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and that's sort of how it gets to Microsoft. But I'll pause and, and yeah, and I mean, ask what, me questions. What was the mood like when when the crash was happening? Did you did, did people around you honestly think the gaming industry was kind of dead forever, or did you always think it would come back? I'd, I'd love to know your views back then. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine, probably for people today, kind of how isolated we were back then. I mean, if you think about it, like I didn't interact with any other game programmers. Yeah. Uh, um, there was no way for me to do it. I, I would get magazines, you know, a few a few kind of enthusiast magazines, um, but I didn't have a way to connect with other programmers. Um, so I, there wasn't sort of like the group think that you have now. So it's just kind of like, oh, you know, the company went out of business. A bunch of other companies went out of business. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't I didn't know, you know, for me, for me in my life at that point, you know, I'm, I'm in college. It was very much around college and yep. class and, you know, for, so so for me, it was more of a like a survival thing. I need to get another job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what was going on, you know, in the, the whole ecosystem i guess yeah now fair enough would be the fair answer yeah good answer um so just before you joined microsoft what what other sort of roles in the game industry did you get if you don't mind briefly quickly going through that sort of part of your life well i didn't have any other roles i mean i worked for Uh, ramox and um and then i got a job working for a little company uh so so I went to college in New Mexico, but I lived in Bellevue, Washington, which is right next mm-hmm. to Redmond, Washington, which is the headquarters of Microsoft. So, um, so I came home one summer and a- after the crash and got a job at a little software company doing this database software. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was looking around for jobs that summer, I went and interviewed at several companies. People are like, did you talk to Microsoft? And I'm like, I no. Why would I talk to Microsoft? I mean, they were just like, I just knew they made a version of basic and yeah. that was a, pretty much it. Um, but the next year, so many people asked me about it that year, that summer that the next summer I sent them a resume too. And, um, and they immediately responded and offered to fly me home at wow. spring break uh, to interview. And so it was like a big deal. Nobody else was offering to fly me home. And, you know, I didn't usually get to go home for spring break. So yeah, great. So, uh, so yeah, it was like, I remember feeling like a big shot, like, you know, my dad's like, well, should I pick you up at the airport? I'm like, no, I have a rental car. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, how big were Microsoft back then? Because obviously they're the, one of the biggest companies in the world right now, but back then, was, they weren't in games at all, were they? Right. So, well, actually, um, I, I don't want to get corrected by, I'm sure you have some historians who listen to your uh, <laughs> podcast. So, um, that, you know, they had done a couple games. Um, ah. they, they did a version of the original Adventure. Um, yep. And they also did a game called Decathlon. They published both of those games uh, back in the early 80s. I don't know the exact date. So yeah. Microsoft's games routes actually go way, way back. But um, but yeah, so um, I the, to answer your question, there were about 800 people at the company when I started, which mm-hmm. seemed big as a you know intern, summer intern. Um, but I had a small job, which was nice. I they put me in charge of their tutorial system. Um, they used to make tutorials for all their uh, all their productivity apps. Um, so like something like Multiplan would have a little tutorial that would teach you how to use it. 
And um, the, the other thing that was happening in that summer, summer of 85, was Microsoft was getting ready to release the first version of Windows, Windows 1.0. And so all the... All the real programmers in the tutorial team were working on the Windows version, so they turned the DOS version of it over to the intern, which was me. Ah. And and that and that was an awesome summer job because I was working with writers and artists, and um, and and they were my customers, and so they'd be like, "Hey, can you add this to the editor or this to the runtime?" and um, and I would go do it and give them a new new version and. Um, and they thought I was fast, so they called me Fast Eddie. So. Oh wow! Yeah, so that was so. That's how I got a, a, a good reputation at the company. Um, Did you? We sorry, Ed. Were you interviewed originally by Bill Gates, or when was when was the first time you met him? Was it was it your first day there, or? So, um, I wasn't interviewed by Bill Gates. Even back then, Bill Gates was kind of a mythical figure for mm. people in the computer business. Um, uh, I was interviewed by a guy named Charles Simone, who is another mythical figure. He was my final interview. And, um, and I, I had a full day of interviews and I remember it being really rigorous. Um, I mean, and then I was, I was a pretty good programmer for my time. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I knew how to program in C and assembly language, which were the two languages that they used. Um, I, I, I felt pretty confident about my skills, but these guys were really good. Um, and yeah, my last interview was with Charles Simone. And if you look up Charles Simone, uh, you'll find out interesting things about him. Like, uh, you know, he was the creator of the original word. He, uh, he's the only two time space tourist. Uh, it's only, (laughs) um, he, uh, you know, has a giant yacht anyway, (laughs) all this stuff. He's, he's a real character, uh, but in a good way. And it was always super nice to me. Um, so, um, so yeah, it was intense. His, his interview was like, gave me some assembly language and asked me what it did and, you know, stuff like that. But, um, anyway, um, so I did meet Bill that summer, uh, and I met Steve Ballmer, uh, because Ballmer, the head of the windows group had quit because he was like sick of the pressure and Ballmer <laughs> took over the project personally. And I got, I, and I just, they, they, they had these weekly status meetings. And for some reason, one week, none of the programmers uh, on the tutorial team could go. And so they sent me instead just to sit in and take notes on the status meeting. And Balmer was up there running the meeting. Oh, wow. And in, in full on Balmer fashion. Um, but, um, but the Bill Gates always held a, a summer intern party where he'd have all the summer interns over to his house. And it's a tradition he did the entire time he was there. Mm. Um, and so that I was excited about, getting to go to his house and meet the Bill Gates. and must know, be incredible. Kind of <laughs> yeah. Did you get a chance to chat with him? Or was it? Was it I did. Busy? Yeah. I chatted with him. I, 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 I'm like, I have to have like some kind of question mm. for him. And, and I couldn't ha- I couldn't think of a good question. And, and the only question I could think of was like something about printing like uh, off a monitor. I don't know. why. I have no idea why. <laughs> when I look back, I like that's the thing I wanted to ask him about. But I did, you know, and, and, you know, and he was nice and responded. And, you know, I don't know. He was always uh, honestly, Bill was always really nice to me the whole time that I worked there. I, I, I saw times when he could be hard on people, but somehow somehow. 
er, early on, I, I convinced him I knew what I was doing, and and so he would he was good to me. If you can if you can get Bill Gates' approval, you you kind of make it. Let's be honest, that's incredible. Um, I don't I don't know if you know this, but do you know if Bill Gates is a fan of video games at all? Do you know if he what sort of games he likes? I know he put a lot of money later into sort of that area. Yeah, so you know, later when I was running the games group, I always felt like I, I had a lot of support from him. Um, you know, we we were an, an example was we were we were putting out some of our early games when I was just had first taken over the games group. So this is in the uh, this is 1996 97 kind of time frame, and we were trying to push the boundaries a little of what we could do because. Uh, Basically, the Office and Windows group were like, you know, go do your game thing, but if you do anything to hurt the Microsoft brand, you know, you're you're in huge trouble. Yeah. Um, but we, but you know, it's hard to be like, do games and be like in a box where you could only do family friendly stuff or whatever, right? So we were just trying to like push boundaries a little, and um, and so we had two games coming out that year where we were trying to trying to be a little edgy and one of them was called deadly tide and i'll explain in a minute why that was edgy and the other one was called hellbender mm. and so the idea of a, a box on a shelf that's had the word microsoft and also the word hell on it you know was like <laughs> at its time like really pushing it but but also deadly tide was controversial because both steve Ballmer and um and, and the the current head of marketing at that, that time uh, it was a guy named Bob Herbold. They had both worked at Procter and Gamble, and the main product of Procter and Gamble was Tide detergent, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so their old company put out Tide, and Microsoft was going to put out Deadly Tide. <laughs> 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 and so we walk into this meeting, um, and it's Bill Gates and and uh, Steve Ballmer and Bob Herbold um, to decide if this is okay if we call our products these names, and and we do this big presentation. And as and as soon as we're done, Bill Gates, um, he's the first one to open his mouth, and he's like, basically, I think these names are great. I think this is fun. You guys should do this. And I could just see, <laughs> I could just see <laughs> Ballmer and, and Bob Herbold biting their tongues because once once Bill said it was okay, it was okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> we walked out of the room like, yes, thank you, Bill, for supporting us. You know, so that was the kind of thing. It was he was you know of the senior management, he was definitely the one who 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 liked games, and you know we would use him when we could. Like when we announced the Xbox, we had him on stage and things like that. That's amazing. Uh, uh, um, but uh, he didn't have much time to play games, and um, I, I could I could kind of tell like he's like a, he would have been a gamer if he had time, but he's just led such a busy life, and he always is you know reading so many books, and he's a you know just knows about everything um, that you know so like he would play like a game he would play would be like Minesweeper, you know he would like take five minutes and play Minesweeper. Um, because it was an intellectual game that he, you know, could do well at. But, I appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, Ed, that's great. That's a really interesting story. Thank you. Um, before we get into the Xbox, what sort of games were you most proud of working on, and what was your exact role before you got your sort of your hands on sort of console areas? Because when I think of Microsoft gaming, the one that really jumps out for me is Age of uh, Age of Empires. How, how about yourself? Yeah. So. Um... So let me explain a little how you go from being an intern to a mm. vice president oh, yeah, of the company. So I'm, and then we'll, um, 
So, so after I worked there the summer of 85, I graduated um, in the summer of 86, and they offered me a full-time job to come back. And I started as the most junior programmer on the team making the first version of Excel for Windows. Um, and so, um, and there, so there were seven of us that, that built that program. And, um, and then, and we were trying to fight the biggest competitor to Microsoft, a company called Lotus, uh, made a, a spreadsheet called Lotus one, two, three, and, and Lotus was bigger than all of Microsoft back then. And, um, anyway, so we spent the, the next five years putting out, uh, bigger and bigger versions of Excel and battling Lotus and finally taking the lead against Lotus. And as the, as those years went by, the, 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 the programming team grew from seven to 15 to 35 to 50. And, and I went from being the youngest programmer to being the, the, what's called the technical lead, which is like the lead programmer. Um, uh, and then my boss moved over to run word and, and he brought me over to be the development manager over word, which was the next step up for me. And so then I was managing a team of 60 programmers, uh, battling Word Perfect with with Word for Windows, uh, and did that for five years. And so, after ten years of the company, the next step up for me was to run a business. And yeah. the, the the logical thing for me to do was to go and either stay in office or go to Windows and run one of those businesses. Like they're like, why don't you go to California and talk to PowerPoint? Maybe you could run the PowerPoint division. Um, and I did that. I went down there and talked to him, but you know, my heart wasn't really in it. And the, the reason was, I, there were really just two things that, that I loved to do. I loved programming and I loved video games. And I, even when I was development manager on word and managing a, a team of 60, I could still program half time. I could still, there were features yeah. in Word that, that I put in and things like that. But I knew the next step up for me running a business. I mean, as a business manager at Microsoft, you couldn't be in the code. I mean, that was just, <laughs> that would be looked down on. So I'm like, I'm giving up this thing that I really enjoy. And the only other thing that I really enjoy, I mean, when I'm going home at night, I'm playing all the latest games and you know, the early nineties were an incredible time for games, you know, Playing games like, uh, you know, Command and Conquer and and uh, Populous from Peter Molyneux oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know Civilization from Sid Meier and just just so many great games were coming out at that time. You know, Doom and Quake, obviously. Um, really, the genres that we have today were all kind of being defined in in the early '90s. And um, and so I don't know. Just one day, I was like, "Well, what about games?" You know, and I, I looked around, and I, I Microsoft had a small group that uh, about 50 full-time people that were doing games, and they had Flight Simulator, and they were trying to do other things. And it just so happened that the head of that group, the the business guy, uh, was leaving. And so I'm like, ah, this is the job yeah, that I yeah. want, you know? So I went to my bosses and I'm like, I found the job, you know, this is the job I want to take. It's running a business. It's an area I really care about, blah, blah, blah. And basically they freaked out. They're, <laughs> they're like, they're like, I got, I got hauled into multiple vice president's offices. I, I'm not a vice president at this time. Uh, I, uh, just hoping to become a business unit manager. And, um, and they're and they're like uh, one one of them, a guy named Nathan Mirvold, um, uh, told me I was committing career suicide. Oh really? Uh, that was the advice he he said he had for me. Um, and then another, another <laughs> vice president, who the guy who ran the division I was I was leaving, uh, he said to me, 
why would you leave office, one of the most important parts of this company, mm -hmm. to go work on something no one cares about? <laughs> oh. <clears throat> so anyway, um, so I, I, was, I was kind of a stubborn kid. So I you know, put my foot down and said, no, this is what I really want to do. I want to do this job. And they, um, they kind of rolled their eyes and they, and they you know, they're like, yeah, he's done a lot for the company. Let him go do his You've earned your game. stripes, yeah. You've earned your time. <laughs> Stupid game thing, if he wants. So, so they let me do it, and uh, it was it was a hard decision, I'll tell you, because you know people I respected were telling me I was making a big mistake, but it felt like I was doing the right thing, you know. It was like a conflict between those two things, um, and um, I go over to take the job, and um, and almost immediately there I, I get over there and they're like hey you know we have a trip planned to tokyo in a couple of weeks do you want to do you want to come along i mean since you're running the group now um and i'm like yeah i would love to go to tokyo um and and so we fly to tokyo and just spend the the day just meeting with like all my heroes of japanese game developers and you know seeing all these amazing things for the first time under development and you know, we're meeting with Yu Suzuki at Sega, and we're meeting with the guys at Capcom building uh, what they call Biohazard, you know, for the first yeah. time. And just, it, it, you know, I just remember walking down the street that night in Tokyo, and it's all Tokyo, you know, big lights and everything, and just thinking, wow, I have the best job. <laughs> like, I totally made the right decision, you know, I have the best job in the world. So anyway... Um, so that, that was the context going into it. Um, you, you were asking about the game. So when I interviewed over in that group, um, they showed me some of the stuff they were working on. Um, and, uh, they were working on some, some of the first three, this was a time when graphics accelerators were just starting to happen, right. Mm. In, in PC games. And so, um, the idea of, you know, really gaming was moving from 2d to 3d at that time in the mid nineties. And so, the game genres were trying to deal with that, right? So they were working with a, a company called Terminal Reality in Dallas. And um, and th those are the ones who did that game, Hellbender, that I mentioned. Mm. Um, so I saw early versions of that. I saw Deadly Tide was kind of a rail shooter that was made by a group called Rainbow out of, out of uh, um, Arizona. Uh, but they showed me an early version of Age. And and I was a huge Command and Conquer Red Alert player, oh, yeah. and so I was really excited to see that game. That that oh, this is something, you know, this is a group in Texas, Dallas, Texas, that, that had never done a game before, um, but they're making a, a you know real time strategy game, and it looked interesting. Mm. Um, so that was definitely one of the one of the games I had my eye on when I was coming into the group, and um, and yeah, and you know, as you know, history. I mean. Basically, when I came into the group and started digging into the business, what I found was that Flight Simulator paid all the bills and everything else was experiments. And yeah. that's great. That's the way game businesses work. You know, you get one big franchise yeah. and it, it's really profitable for you if you run it right. And then you try to take that money and reinvest it in the business to create more um, more hits. Right. And so that was really my strategy. And I had a, I had a, like a, a right hand guy named Shane Kim, who was, uh, he was a Harvard MBA. I, I wasn't really a, you know, game developer, programmer, technical product guy. And so to have a, a more of a business guy with me, we, we were a good combination. You know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah. And so, 
uh, we started to look around and say, well, what can we do with all this money we're getting from Flight Simulator? You know, could we, you know, work with other people? You know, I, I started to, to talk to like and meet with those kind of heroes of mine, people whose games I had played, you know, meet with Peter Molyneux, right? Meet with Sid Meier, you know, those guys, <laughs> you know, you try to, you know, be like, oh, I'm a guy from Microsoft, but really I was like a fanboy, you know? Um, and can we work together, right? Look for ways we could work with these guys. And, and some of those discussions started to turn into acquisitions, right? Um, so, you know, age, 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 we, you know, the next year we came out with the first version of Age, and it was clear that it was becoming a big hit for us, and it was going to be like a second cash cow for us. You yep. know, Flight yep. Simulator was doing well, Age was doing really well, um, and we used some of that money to buy Ensemble, so that, yeah. uh, so that they were, uh, you know, a part of our team, and we used some of it to buy um, uh, FASA. Uh, you know, the creators of Mech Warrior, you know, Battletech, yep. uh, Crimson Skies, uh, Shadowrun. Yep. Uh, so got Jordan into the team and his group. And then we just kind of continued to, to grow the group and, and expand. And, and yeah, but age was a, a critical part of what we were doing in the early days. That's incredible. Oh, thank you. So that's a great, great answer. I mean, it's amazing hearing about it. It must seem so, so crazy meeting such massive idols but and, and really get you well changing the gaming industry as well so good on you ed really interesting um random question just were you involved with clippy for word the uh, the sort of staple assistant by any chance <laughs> that wasn't on your list of questions. no i know no it's just that I, I mentioned it because <laughs> um i think you find this very interesting ed. we i spoke to brett uh, brett mogolevsky a few months ago he worked on grim fandango and he said to me he used the the staple uh, clippy as a way of uh, getting the sort of um the, the mouse working correctly for that for that particular game so he probably owes you a bit of credit on, on word so in a way, your work on Word has helped develop quite a massive game in Grim Fandango. Okay, so so a few things to correct there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to get more on this than you think you might think you will. <laughs> uh, first of all, Clippy did not come into office till I was long gone. Okay, my apologies. <laughs> okay. Second, Clippy was based on some earlier work by uh, uh, that Microsoft did to make a. a a user-friendly operating system. Do you know about that? Uh, vaguely. <laughs> so it was called Bob, Microsoft Bob. Oh, okay. okay. And it and it was it had a like a character interface. There were these little characters that would pop up and try to help you and tell you what to do. Mm. Uh, little avatars. So Clippy derived from that. The thing you got to know about Bob is uh, two of the main people behind Bob are Melinda Gates. Uh, ah. so her her project, um, and my twin sister Karen. Oh wow! So um, my my sister worked for Melinda. Uh, I spent my whole life trying to get away from my twin sister. You know, we're all going through school together. <laughs> every you know, all through high school, you know, junior high, and 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 you know, and she has nothing to do with programming, right? And I'm like, so finally, I and, and I go off to call, I fly to New Mexico to get away, right? She's going to the University of Washington right nearby. I'm down in, you know, in New Mexico. Finally, I can like be my own person, right? Uh, uh, and um, and yeah, I, and then I, I get this job at Microsoft. I come, I start, start working at Microsoft. So a year after I'm at Microsoft, she gets hired by the company as a recruiter. Mm. So now, now my sister is 
at my company, okay? And just to give you a, a sense, like, when, when you have a twin, like, you're running into people all the time, and they're like, oh, you're Karen's brother. And then you're, <laughs> you're like, no, I'm not Karen's brother. I'm myself, you know? Yeah. Um, she's my sister, but I'm not, you know, anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I come into work one day, and one of the perks of working at Microsoft in the old days was everyone was guaranteed a private office. Every programmer had their own office. Mm-hmm. And with a door that you could shut, had your name on the door, that was, like, kind of the original big perk to work there that and free soda <laughs> and um so i come into work one day and the nameplate on my office has changed and instead of saying ed freeze it says karen's brother oh no <laughs> so so yeah so i like to blame clippy on her really <laughs> because, because she worked on bob and bob clippy clippy came from what the work that she did on bob so Wow, so your so sister anyway, deserves and, and, respect for Grim Fandango then. <laughs> yeah, and I know she's not going to listen to the, this podcast, so I can I can just make it say whatever I want. But yeah, <laughs> it's it's my twin sister's fault that there's Clippy. I'll just say that. There you yeah. go. Um, I'd love it, Ed, if you could reveal. Um, when did you first have the idea, or your team have the idea that making a console is the way to go? Was it way, way before the Xbox, or was it was what sort of generation and i'd love to know if there's any sort of crazy ideas or names flying around before you sort of finally settled on xbox sure so basically what happened is by the late 1990s we had made a bunch of acquisitions we were growing our pc business we were starting to have a real impact in the pc gaming business and we were you know all through my career i was always like measuring what i was working on against some competitor so it's like Excel fighting Lotus one two three Word fighting Word perfect come over to games who am I going to fight I'm going to fight Electronic Arts right they are the biggest guys with the mm. biggest market share and so we were we were trying to you know be bigger in PC gaming than they were and 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 we ran into each other in a bunch of deals I almost bought Westwood Studios and then they bought it out from under me at the last minute and you know um, blah 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 anyway. Um, and so we were battling them, but it was just getting harder and harder for us to get each extra point of market share. You know, when we got up into the teens, there were a bunch of different publishers and even EA was probably only in the low 20s. And it was just it was just a real battle to get another point of share. Yep. Um, but if we looked more broadly, well, what about the console business? You know, we have zero there. We could probably, you know, and we have these games, we have this intellectual property. Maybe we could make some money over there and grow the business on the console side. And maybe that would be easier to grow there than it would be on the PC side. So these are just thoughts that we had, you know, as we, as we thought about our business. And then uh, one day these crazy guys asked for a meeting with me and, and, and they walked into my office and they weren't the first, by the way, the first guys to talk to me were the guys who worked for the windows CE team uh, who had done, uh, who were putting a version of windows on the dreamcast and, most people who who know the Dreamcast shipped with a little Windows logo on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it does. There, yeah. Was a, there was a way to boot it into Windows mode, and nobody did it. There was <laughs> no content for it. Part of the reason there was no content for it is was they approached me like a few years earlier, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to publish for that thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm I'm focused on the PC. So they kind of came to me at the wrong time. But you know, a little later. Uh, you know, when, when things were getting harder to grow the PC business, 
these guys came into my office who I knew from the DirectX team. And DirectX is the gaming part of Windows, right? And um, these guys were mostly evangelists, some technical people. And they had this idea for uh, a game console that they called the Direct Xbox or shortened uh, the Xbox. Um, and so the name comes directly from where they worked. <laughs> um, and um, and yeah, so and it was very different than what well, in some ways different than what we shipped. It was it was going to be exactly a PC. Uh, it was going to be made by a PC manufacturer, some OEM PC manufacturers like Dell or Compaq yeah. or hopefully a group of them. Uh, it was going to run Windows and it was going to just pretend basically to be a game console, <laughs> like like you could put a. a, a a PC game into it and it would quietly install it on the background oh, really? and then boot it up and run it. So it would be like a consumer friendly front end to a Windows PC was the original pitch. Um, and to me, this sounded really interesting because um, although the, the console market looked uh, appealing to me for the reasons I said, like it was a big and growing market, it also looked intimidating. It was like, when I looked at the content, because I was a, a gamer, I was still playing all these games. Mm. Uh, it was pretty different than PC games, um, and it was, and it really was focused on different things. You know, it was very colorful and character oriented, and um, you know, and and PC games at that time were very much um, darker and grittier and, and yep. more more about either real time strategy or first person shooters, networked multiplayer stuff that didn't really exist on consoles uh, for the most part. Uh, at that time. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, we had a bunch of content, but was it the right content to take to console? Here, mm. these guys were saying, hey, we're going to make this thing that's basically a PC. It'd be really easy to port your content over to it. And we need content to launch this thing. Will you be basically our first party games provider? Will you be the, the guy who makes games for our, our console? Um, and basically, I said yes. So that was the start of my involvement with Xbox. That's brilliant. That's amazing. I mean, it must be so fun to work on. Um, how did you, what was your, I mean, it's always a gamble releasing a whole new product in a, in a new market. I know you, you've obviously worked in the industry, but were, were you really excited? Were you nervous? And what, what sort of things have you put in place to try and make sure your console would be a huge success? Because so many consoles in the past have sort of <laughs> burnt straight away, if that makes sense, really poor sort of releases yeah so it's funny probably of all the people on the team the senior people i was probably the least nervous because i felt like i have a big pc gaming business to fall back on so <laughs> you know if this doesn't work out they actually didn't like that very much because they <laughs> they're like you know all of us are like 100 percent committed and you're like 50 percent because you're still running your other business yeah and i'm like yeah but my other business is making games that's why we have games for this so anyway so so in that sense i i wasn't um intimidated by it i also was i guess i liked the big i i, I kind of grew up inside microsoft like yep. challenging big people who were bigger than us and it was sort of <laughs> sort of what i was used to you know it was like we're, we're we're the little guys i know my people don't look at microsoft that way but all the markets where i participated in we, we were we were always smaller right yep. 
you know, uh, Excel was smaller when we started, Word was smaller when we started, and games, we were definitely an underdog in games. Um, and so why not be an underdog in consoles too? <laughs> um, and so, um, so yeah, that it was, I, I'd say that was part of the fun, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. How about, and obviously Halo, that was a big part, is that right? So securing such a great launch title, title as well, would you, would you agree with that, Ed? Yeah, so I had spent a lot of time, um, you know, traveling around, meeting with the people I really respected, looking for opportunities to work together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and so that's how I knew Lauren Lanning and, uh, you know, brought us the Oddworld series, which was the first kind of big thing that we brought over to Xbox. Um, but I had met this guy, you know, who knows, probably drinking at a bar at GDC or something late one night. Um, uh, a guy named Peter Tampty, and he was the business guy for Bungie. And I had played uh, some early Bungie games, for example, um, the, um, oh, now the name just went out of my head, because um, the name Oni came in my head, but that's not the one I want. They're, they're, they're a real-time strategy game, uh, Myth. Um, oh, yeah. so, so I had played Myth and really, really had respect for them um, and met Peter Tampty. But like a lot of these things, it's like I would meet somebody and it would seem like there's no way we were ever going to work together. You know, they were their own uh, developer, publisher, blah, blah, blah. But you never know, right? So just building relationships with people, never know what's going to happen. Um, and uh, like, for example, I met the Stamper brothers uh, uh, not long, right around the time we launched Xbox. And it didn't seem like we could ever work together because mm-hmm. they were working with Nintendo. But we'll probably get to that later. Um so anyway, uh, so just out of the blue, so Xbox gets approved uh, February 2001. It gets the final, or, sorry, 2000, final yeah. approval. And, uh, and it's kind of like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's February, February 2000. We're going to launch November 2001. So less than two years. How are we going to pull together a console lineup? And by, by this time, the Xbox has really changed. It's not... A PC, it's not running Windows anymore. It's not a PC anymore. <laughs> I mean, we're really going to have to make console games, you know, for a console audience on a console, uh, things we had never done before. Um, the only good news is I had a huge budget. Okay, yeah, so yeah. I've, got, I've got money to spend. <laughs> I just need to do the impossible, but I have I have the money to do the impossible. And um, you know, so. Uh, um, you know, we so we signed up with a Dreamcast developer who had done a racing game to make the game that would become Project Gotham Racing. That was believable because yeah. it was kind of a port. Um, you know, Lorne Lanning, he came from the console world. Uh, we're going to support him with Oddworld. Okay. But then one day my phone rings and, and it's Peter Tamty. And he's telling me that, that they're having trouble at Bungie. This was a time when the developer publishers were kind of going away. Um, the publishing at that time was becoming something that only kind of big companies could do because the Walmarts of the world were getting big and they wanted just to talk to a few big publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was getting harder and harder for a little company like Bungie to get their product on, on the shelf. And they were so they were struggling. Take-Two already owned a third of the company and if nothing else happened, Take-Two was just going to buy the rest of the company and, and, and take over Bungie. But Peter's like, but, you know, maybe you would be interested. Um, and, 
and yeah, I was interested. I had I had a big checkbook, and I had uh, I I respected these guys. I didn't know much about this game they were building called Halo. Mm-hmm. Um, I know one of my at least one of the guys on my team had seen it and seen the video, um, and but yeah, I'm interested, and so. Um, and so that um, led to a conversation that led to us ultimately acquiring actually part of the company. We we had to negotiate with a Ryan Brandt, who's the the guy who started and, and ran Take Two for many years, um, because he already owned part of the company. And so we decided between Ryan and me, we figured out how to split up the company. And basically, uh, I I said you can have all the back catalog, all the intellectual property they've created up till now, mm. um, and I'm gonna um, Complete. I'm going to pay f- to complete the game called Oni with a team in California that's doing that, and you can publish that. And all I want is all the programmers, uh, you know, all the developers, and the this new thing they're doing called Halo. You can have everything else. Um, and um, that sounded like a good deal to him. So <laughs> in, re- in retrospect, I think it was a good deal for me. But um, anyway. Uh, so, um, we moved the team out, uh, to, to Redmond from Chicago and they got to work on, on, uh, on Halo and they were incredibly instrumental, not just in, you know, creating the defining launch title, but also really in working closely with the hardware team on Xbox to help not only make sure that the hardware was up to the task, but the, the interface, the multiplayer stuff, everything, they were, they were super critical they were they were not just someone developing a game for Xbox. They really helped define the Xbox yep. itself. Um, so they were just just super important. Oh, brilliant! Hey, that's brilliant. Um, obviously, you knew there was competition out there. The PlayStation Two, the Dreamcast, which I know was a slightly probably out of kilter a little bit by them, and also the GameCube. I'd really love to hear your personal opinions of those consoles. And so, at the time, which one did you view as the biggest sort of competitor? Which one were you sort of most scared of? And um, are you are you a particular fan of all those three consoles yourself? So definitely a fan. Uh, definitely had used them all, and you know, uh, continue to use them all. Um, yep. N64 in particular, I played a lot of. Uh, Diddy Kong Racing, I was really oh, into yeah. back at that time, and <laughs> of course, I had seen GoldenEye and. Um, so, um, you know, definitely a Nintendo fan from way back, you know, had an NES, you know, when it came out, um, uh, Sony, Sony was really the one we saw as our competitor. Um, and it's part of, there's a whole long story. I don't have time to tell you right now about why, why the Xbox project ultimately got approved, but you can find it other places if you look for Valentine's Day massacre, but um, <laughs> but that 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 really shows that the top guys at, at Microsoft, you know, Bill and Steve, were worried about Sony as a competitor, and that's one of the reasons they approved the project. But anyway, um, but we actually tried to collaborate with Nintendo. We 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 had a meeting with them very early on in the project to see if they wanted to co-develop something together. We had uh, Bill talk to the head of Sony and, and to see if they wanted to work together. Wow. So we, we, we tried to pursue those avenues before we ultimately competed. Um, but anyway, uh, once we launched, uh, so, so Sony made our life very difficult in Japan. Uh, and it was hard. Basically, I would meet with Japanese developers. I spent a fair amount of time in Japan. And they were very open to me and friendly because they felt like 
on the one hand, very much sort of under the thumb of Sony, but they also felt like they couldn't piss off Sony. So it's like yeah. they wanted they wanted someone to counterbalance the pressure that Sony had, but they also like Sony had cut them all good deals. So if they were too supportive of us, um, it, they they were afraid Sony would. Uh, pull their special terms and they'd have to just get the normal terms, which were not as good. Yeah. Um, and so there was that tension between it. And, and basically the way that played out in the market was they would support us in the rest of the world, but they wouldn't support us very well in Japan. Um, and mm. probably, probably the one company that was an exception to that was Tecmo, you know, t- you know, Tecmo really dove in with both feet with dead or alive and itagaki san was a fantastic partner for us on the third party side this wasn't out of my group first party um i actually ran third party two after xbox launch but anyway um so yeah now i'm now i'm like now i forgot what you asked me but basically (laughs) basically, yeah um both nintendo and 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 sony were both competitors we 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 certainly worried about both I feel like we kind of got a break when it came to Nintendo uh, with uh, that generation. I think it was Nintendo kind of would have a, a good generation and a mediocre generation yep. and a good generation. And that was one of their weaker ones. You know, um, I, th- I think the GameCube just wasn't that great a machine. I think the games on it were not as great as some of the stuff that they they followed up with. I mean, if you think about it, the, the impact that we had, you know, yes, later. Of course. Um, compared to GameCube. So in, in, in that case, I felt like we got kind of lucky uh, up against them. But Sony was Sony was very much a tough competitor, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, obviously, competition, I mean, it, it breeds the best, doesn't it? So it's, it, it's, it's, it's incredible. I, I, you know, the Xbox, fair play to you, it was a huge success. It was, uh, you know, it, I think it sold just behind, behind the PS2. Is that correct? I don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. Well, yeah, it really depends on the market you look at. I mean, yeah, we, yeah. Did, we did quite well in the U.S. We did uh, not as well in Europe, but but I'd say we had a solid performance, and we did really poorly in Japan, <laughs> really poorly. Uh, again, a, a, a tough question, Ed, but if you could turn back time, if you could sort of travel back in time, and you could add one new additional feature or a sort of extra bit, bit here on the Xbox, another sort of option here or, or this or that, what would you have chosen and why? Uh, so the, the funny thing is I probably got the thing that I wanted. Yeah. Uh, and I, and, and whether I was right to want it or not is probably the more interesting discussion. You know, <laughs> uh, the, the two things that I really, really fought for, I really fought for the hard disk being in the Xbox and, yep. um, I thought it would have a bigger impact than it did. Um, but I thought it was really important. Uh, and it was it ended up being an expensive thing in the Xbox. And it really ended up kind of shortening the life of the Xbox because not just the the hard disk, but the hard disk was one of the reasons the Xbox ended up having a shorter life. Uh, just because they couldn't really, uh, it, it was designed so quickly that it wasn't designed in a way that it could be cost reduced, you know, yes. whereas, yeah. you know, like PlayStation 2, they ended up, you know, way down to where they're basically doing the whole thing on one ship, you know. Uh, that, that was impossible on the Xbox. Um, and so for Xbox 360, we thought a lot more about those kinds of things. And I was kind of disappointed that they made the hard disk optional in the 360 because uh, it made it so as a developer, you know, which is my background, you, you, didn't, you couldn't rely on the hard disk being there. And I thought that yeah. also limited the hard disk's adoption as being something that was important to game developers because I thought it could be 
I mean, it was almost like the cloud computing of the day. It was like a thing that was, you know, where you could do stuff. It would bring a new possibility that wasn't there before. Like on Halo, they could stream larger levels off the hard disk, right? Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, you know, now we look at modern consoles, and of course, they all have hard disks. Yeah. Uh, and, and really, if you look at the consoles today, they look look a lot more like the Xbox than they look like a PlayStation or a Nintendo GameCube. Um, you know, they're, they're all basically PC architectures. They have x86 type <laughs> architectures, you know, um, they have hard disks. Um, and, and so I really feel like, and, and they're all networked, uh, you know, I really feel like the Xbox was ahead of its time, but you know, you can always be too ahead of your time, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, so the hardest was, was, was maybe on the edge of being too ahead of its time. Um, you've mentioned Bungie and uh, Ensemble already, but Rare. When I think of Rare, uh, I, you know, I automatically go back to Diddy Kong Racing and GoldenEye. It seemed like Rare and Nintendo were like almost <laughs> wedded to each other. I, I'd love to know how you managed to wrestle Rare, Rare away from them and, and get them involved in, in, in X, and Microsoft and Xbox. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, and you know, like I said, I, I had a chance to meet with the Stampers uh, not long after launch, if I'm remembering right. Um, I was in Europe and someone offered, hey, if you're out here, do, do you want to, would you like to just meet with these guys, the Stamper brothers, who of course created Rare? And I'm like, sure, absolutely. And in meetings like that, my goal is always to like try to convince people, I, whatever you think of Microsoft, um, I'm probably not what you expect. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> I love, I love games. I'm a programmer. I made games back in the day. And, and so I can sit down and talk with people like that and you know, pretty soon we're talking about stuff programmers talk about and, and, the, and the game to, game people talk about. And and you're like, oh, this is okay. He has like this big company behind him that I, that is, you know, known for Windows and Office. But actually, this is a guy who really loves this area and loves games and cares about it. And so that's all my only goal in a meeting like that. And I, you know, I, I think I achieved it. Um and um and but didn't know whether it would ever matter right um and a few years later um they they reached out to me and um and the reason was interesting so basically what happened was rare had been working closely with the nintendo for many years and yeah. the rare guys had a pretty savvy business guy who an older guy who had really worked in business his whole life and he's and and, and nintendo wanted to buy um part of rare and that's always a tricky thing. If someone buys part of your company, but then then no one else wants to buy the other part because mm. you know, <laughs> you know. And, and so Nintendo bought half the company, right? And and so why would anyone else buy the other half? So the way he set up the deal was, okay, I'll sell you half the company, but within the next ten years you have to buy the other half. And if you uh. don't, if you don't, I have the right to buy back the half that you have so I can sell the whole company to someone else. Okay. So that was the deal they made early on in their history. And uh, what had happened was that that amount of time had come up. I don't know, remember if it was exactly 10 years or whatever. It had come up once already and Nintendo and their and Rare is like, okay, you're going to buy the rest of the company and we're worth probably a couple hundred million dollars at this point. Yeah. And Nintendo's like, uh, 
can we buy an can we buy an option to extend the decision for a couple of years? And they're like, okay. So they sold that option to Nintendo and they went another couple of years and they're like, again, okay, are you going to buy the company? And, and Nintendo said no. Oh, and, really? And so, uh, so Rare's like, okay, fine. We're going to go out and shop ourselves to someone else. And they went out, they talked to us, they talked to Activision, they talked to several other companies and uh and we had a very close fight with activision uh it was it was really looking close whether we were going to buy the company or activision was going to buy the company and and i i think that the rare guys really liked us but they had been working for a first party their whole time and so if you imagine when you're when you're an independent or semi-independent developer and you work for nintendo you're really at the whims of like whether they have a good console cycle or a bad one, right? Yep. Uh, so just coming off GameCube, which hadn't been a huge success for Nintendo, not knowing what's going to happen in the future, do you really want to saddle yourself with another new guy, Xbox, which is even less proven, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know that your games will only be on their platform and not on anyone else's, right? Or do you, you want to go with somebody like Activision that's independent that can publish on all, all the platforms? Yeah. Um, so that was the edge that Activision had on us. Probably the edge we had was we could write a bigger check than Activision was willing to write. And I think ultimately that's what it came down to. Um, and we did that deal. Oh, wow. that's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, what are your personal views, Ed, if you don't mind asking, of the Xbox 360 and the Xbox One? Um, and have you got any particular ideas or where you think the Xbox console and brand should go in the future? Yeah, so Xbox 360, um, so I left kind of in the middle of the Xbox 360 planning. Um, so I was through there fighting for a bunch of stuff that ended up in and stuff that didn't end up in. Probably one of the things that I thought was most important was backward compatibility. And they were going to cut, cut it completely at one point, and they didn't because I threw a fit. Um, and so I, and I, I, so I'm really happy to see that backward compatibility is something they still are trying to take seriously and understand that it's important. Cause I think every year that goes by, it becomes more clear that it's important. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I can't take credit for too much on 360. I, I think with, I think, you know, 360 was a real big success for the company. And a, a lot of it was more around market strategy based on what we had learned uh, from the first Xbox. And a lot of that I, I attribute to my boss, Robbie Bach. Um, so he really wanted to be the first console to market. Um, and since we were having trouble cost reducing the Xbox anyway, it meant, you know, we could sort of cut short the life of the original Xbox and, and be more aggressive in bringing out 360. Um, so being there first and being there with a, with a box that was designed to be cost reducible. And that, and those were really the the two big things for 360 for us, and um, and I think uh, those were both really paid off. Um, uh, so I think I think 360 was overall a, a big success. Mm. Xbox One, I don't really like the way it was launched. Uh, I don't want to get personal about the people who were involved, but <laughs> uh, but I think there were just some real real mistakes that were made, which were are, were kind of surprising around the positioning of the box um and um and the way certain things were, were set up and done and I, I don't think that's a controversial opinion i think everybody in the game business was like what yeah are you doing and why 
Um, and, and then, uh, you know, from my point of view, Phil Spencer took over. Phil was a guy I hired into the group. He worked for me. It's funny. The, the day that I quit the company, uh, Phil walked into my office and said, should I quit too? <laughs> I'm like, no, <laughs> you don't have to quit. Uh, I'm glad he didn't quit that day because um, he's really a great guy to be running the game business for them. Yeah. And I, I think he's done a fantastic job turning Xbox One around and, and, and positioning them. Uh, to launch the next-gen Xbox, which um, I don't know exactly when it's coming, but it, it seems like we're coming up on the verge of the next next console generation yeah. here. So uh, I feel very positive about where Xbox is and where it's going. I, you know, the fact that they asked me, asked me back in the day, why would you work on something no one cares about? I think it's clear Microsoft cares about games now, and uh, it was great to be part of that. Oh, brilliant. Now, if you don't mind me asking, do you, do you mind sharing with us why you did end up leaving Microsoft? Because obviously you made a huge legacy there, an amazing career, not just in gaming, but in programming as well. It, you, had a, you know, you, you really made a name for yourself. And But why did you end up leaving? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated question. I mean, um, I would say it this way. Um, it, it was a, there's like whenever you, you leave, it's usually a set of things that are like, pushing you to leave and a set of things that are pulling you to want to leave, right? Yeah. And so the things that were pulling me were I was turning 40, I was starting a family, I had one son and I had a second one on the way and I really didn't need to work full-time anymore. I had, I had made enough money, I had fought a bunch of big battles, I had a lot of stuff that I was proud of and so the idea of doing the family and focusing more on that, um, still finding a way to stay involved in the game business but you know, doing other stuff that was had a real appeal to me. Um, at, at the same time, uh, the battles I, I was really used to running. When the, the great thing about nobody caring about the game business was, I got to really run it my way. You yep. know, and you know, I grew that group from 50 people up to 1,200, and really just you know, making the decisions every day and doing everything the way I thought it needed to be done. And once Xbox launched. And it was successful. Um, you know, I wasn't like running my own business anymore. I was part of a bigger team, and I didn't always agree with things that were being done. And it led to a lot more tension at work, a lot of disagreements, and 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 a lot of it was like trying to tell me how to do not just for Xbox, but how to what to do when first party, like how to run my group. Yeah. Like oh, like oh, oh, Halo worked. Halo did so well. We should, you know, rush out another version of Halo really quick. And it's like, no, that's exactly not what we should do. You know, we <laughs> should, this is our most important franchise now. We need to take the time to make sure we put out an even better version of the next yeah. version of Halo. You know, that that was the kind of conflict I'm talking about. And um, and so it just was. It was it was it was the push and pull of those two things finally kind of kind of led to a point where I'm like, I'm out of here. You know, oh, fair enough. I mean, you yeah. you must you must look back with pride though at your time at Microsoft. Is that fair? Yeah, I really do. I wish you could see the room I'm sitting in here. Is my office where I work every day? It's not only it's filled with arcade machines, which I awesome. take a lot of pleasure <laughs> maintaining and repairing, but it's also got uh, 
you know, like just various memorabilia from the, those times, different different things I was given or, or, or unique versions of the Xbox or stuff like that. Yeah, I, I take a ton of pride in it. It's really a moment in my life I'm very proud of. Uh, I bet you've got some pretty rare uh, games <laughs> and stuff over there. Wow. Um, is it true, Ed? I mean, I, wrote, I read this on the internet that World of Warcraft is your favorite game of all time, or one of your favorites. And is it true you're actually trying to work in this game and try and bring these characters back to life with figures or is that a load of rubbish on the internet uh so so after so i left in 2004 which yep. uh, and i had played a bunch of everquest so i i love the idea of massively multiplayer rpgs rpgs is probably one of my favorite genres yeah um and so it was a great time to quit my job because i could really focus on world of warcraft <laughs> i played in the I, I i by the way i tried to buy blizzard several times oh I had a wow huge really for them and uh yeah the the first time I, I tried to buy them this is you know back in the old days i the first time i tried to buy them i got outbid by a, a timeshare camping company called <laughs> sendant which was really weird and then and then they came back on the market a few years later after that all fell apart and and I got outbid by a French water utility, That's amazing. Uh, which is called Vivendi, that had was run by this crazy guy who decided he was going to turn a French water utility into a global media empire, um, which he basically did. But anyway, so yeah, <laughs> so I knew the Blizzard guys very well. I knew the president Mike Morheim really well, and so yeah, they put me in the beta, got really loved the game, ha- had had some free time. Um, and, and played a lot. Yeah. I, I played a little, uh, gnome rogue, uh, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, so yeah, I started a little company back, you know, more than a decade ago called figure prints and we ah. do three, 3d color prints of world of Warcraft characters. Um, and, um, and, um, it, the company's still around today. You can go to figureprints.com, figure yeah. prints, um, and, uh, and print your world of Warcraft character. I haven't run, I, I, I'm still technically the CEO, but I haven't been, I haven't operated the day-to-day business for a couple of years. It's now, now run by a company called Fabstat. Mm. Um, but I, I still, I still consult with them. And, um, but yeah, my day-to-day job, uh, by the way, is I'm, I'm running a, a venture firm called One Up Ventures. So, uh, um, and we're out making investments in small game developers and trying to oh, help brilliant. support create creativity in the game business. So. Oh, that's really that's really good. So, what indie developers and just just trying yeah. to get yeah, oh, that's excellent. Oh, good on you. Yeah, guys. you you can go to oneupventures.com or oneupfund.com and you can see we've made seven investments since March and uh, our goal is to make fifty in the next three years. So that's incredible. I, no, I really respect that because obviously you've worked in a huge company and it's good to give. We're not, you know, it's it's a tough it's a tough uh, area to crack into now, isn't it, for, for small developers? So good on you. Yeah, I love I love working with developers. I love staying connected with the game business and doing what I can to help. Good on you. I've, I've got to ask actually about Halo 2600. I mean, I've seen some footage. It looks incredible. I mean, what? <laughs> can, do you mind telling me a little bit about the game and what inspired you and how how that came about? Yeah, that's that's one of the nice things about not having a full time job is you can you know pursue things that you're passionate about. Um, I had. One of the things I've done a fair amount of since I left is is speaking at different game conferences around the world. 
And I was giving a talk at a game conference in Philadelphia. And after the talk, uh, someone came up to me and mentioned a book called Racing the Beam, uh, um, and, which I hadn't heard of. Um, and it's it's about the Atari 2600. And um, the Atari 2600 is kind of like the, you know, the the early version of the Atari 800. Um, it's just like a much more primitive version of some of the same technology that's in the Atari 800. So anyway, I read the book and I was really fascinated that anybody could even make a game. You know, by the time I was <laughs> done reading this, this book, I'm like, this hardware is so primitive. I mean, there's there's only 128 bytes of memory. 128 bytes, that's nothing. And and there's no there's no frame buffer. So like the the program so normally in a, a, the way any machine since then works basically is you basically draw a picture off screen if you can imagine that you draw a picture yeah. in memory off screen and then you tell the computer it's done and then it shows that picture on screen just to try to explain it in a very simplistic way um, this machine doesn't have that because that would take a lot of memory um, so it, it only has enough memory. Even this is fibbing to, to draw one line. Okay, yeah. so it, you, you basically have to draw everything a line at a time, and that's why the book is called "Racing the Beam." The beam you're racing is the electron beam as it scans down the television screen on a CRT. You have to stay ahead of that beam. You have to know where it is at all time in your code, and you have to stay ahead of it and make changes. To, to the, what few memory locations you have before it starts drawing them on the screen. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's incredibly challenging to, to work on the machine. You have really limited memory. You have limited time. The microprocessor is very slow. And then you, you have a limited total amount of code space of, of, of 4K unless you do this bank switching thing, which I didn't want to do because I, I figured that was cheating. <laughs> even though some consoles did it back in the day. So, so I'm like, wow, can I, I wonder if I could even just like, I wonder how hard it would be after reading the book. I'm like, how hard would it be to just like even do anything on this machine? And so I poked around and I found there was like a small developer community that at least had yeah. some development tools and the tools were decent. I mean, there was a, an assembler and there was a, a emulator debugger. Those are kind of the three things that you need. Um, and so I downloaded the tools and I just started playing with them and I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I just, I pulled up MS paint and I drew a little picture of a master chief and, um, and I just tried to get it on the screen, you know? Yeah. And, and after <laughs> a few weeks of work, you know, writing hand assembly language, like I used to do as a kid, it's the same processor, 6502 processor that I used to use on that 800, you know, some of it all came back to me right how it worked um i got the little master chief on the screen and then i'm like hmm uh i wonder if i could make it move around you know hook it to the joystick and so then i did that and then i'm like uh it would be fun if it could shoot and so i gave it a gun to shoot and then yeah. be fun if it had something to shoot at um and so then i made a little uh, another little character that moved around uh to shoot and that's basically what i had and and by March of 2010 and I went to the game developers conference and I just happened to be walking by and I saw a guy Chris Charla who works on the Xbox team today um, and he and he was standing with a group 
people at the Game Developers Conference, and he introduced me to them. And several of them were guys who I recognized from the book as people who had worked on um, on the Atari 2600, like back in the day, like the yeah. guy who made the original Pac-Man was standing right there. And um, also a guy named Mike Micah, who does yep. a bunch of retro stuff. Anyway, and so I'm like, oh, that's funny, you know. You know, I know about your work. It's funny. I, I I've been playing around on the Atari 2600 lately too. And they're like, well, what do you what do you mean you're playing on the 2600? Oh, I'm just screwing around. I read the Racing the Beam, and then I decided just to put like a little Master Chief on the screen and you know make it so I can drive him around. And they're like, wait, you're making Halo for the Atari 2600? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. no, no, I didn't say that. I said I'm just screwing around. I'm just like doing this you know characters on the screen and they're like no you have to do it yeah i'm like what are you talking about and they're like no you have to finish the game you have to make halo 2600 and i'm like i do and they're like yeah you do you have to finish this <laughs> it's like a moral imperative and then i started to have excuses you know like oh well i'm like you know it's just me i don't have anybody helping they're like oh we'll all be your play testers i'm like okay oh, brilliant uh, but but you know i'm not very good at making sprites and, the, and mike micah's like i'll do your sprites for you um you know, what do you need? I'm like, oh, I need a, you know, tree and a this and a that. And like, okay, I'll draw. I'm going to go draw them. Um, you know, and it's oh, like, and wow. so they, they became like my crew in helping, you know, to finish this game. I just had to concentrate on all the programming, which is pretty much all the work. Um, but anyway, um, and so, yeah. Um, so I set a goal of, of getting the game done by the Classic Gaming Expo in July of 2010. And, uh, and I worked really hard between March <laughs> and July. Um, and, and I ran out of space in the 4,000 bytes, the 4K of code space, and then it got really hard because every time I wanted to add something, I had to take something away. And wow. I had I had this whole kind of uh, moon patrol-like mode where you were um, you know, driving the warthog, and I had to cut that because I didn't have enough space. But you know, in the end, I was really proud of what I was able to get into the in, into the cartridge. And you know, it's it's uh, 64 levels. You you fight your way through. There's a big boss encounter at the end. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a real game. You know, um, all happening on this incredibly primitive machine. And so um, I'm really proud of it. Yeah. Is it still available? Can people buy it or get hold of it? Or? Yeah, you can go to AtariAge.com. Uh, Al Yaruso, who, who runs Atari Age, was also one of my playtesters. And uh, so the plan was always to have him make cart cartridges. He made 150 cartridges for the original Classic Gaming wow. Expo. Those are very rare now. They had a special label. Um, and those got snapped up. Now he, he continues to make them, but the, the second run has a, a, a different label a silver yeah. label but, but anyway anyway yeah it's all all really really fun stuff that's great and that's a love would, would you ever make any other games the atari 2600 are you tempted so i did a rally x um and i got it like 95 percent done and if you go and look on atari edge you can find it and download it for free um uh it's it's like almost all done uh, and playable but i didn't at least with halo i i asked microsoft if they minded if i if i released it <laughs> with rally yeah. x um i had like a preliminary conversation with namco and it just didn't seem like they were that into it i don't know I, yeah and i've never i've never gone back to them and tried to get real permission and i, I just don't like ripping people off so, you sure, know, yeah. so, <laughs> so, so as long as it's something i'm just playing around with it's fine but 
you know, if Al's actually going to put in a cartridge and charge people for it, I feel like we need need the rights from Namco for it. So, oh, it's 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 been a real real pleasure. Uh, I've really enjoyed this chat today. Thank you so much. Um, you yeah, mentioned yeah, yeah mention one other. Can I mention one oh, other yeah, thing real quick? Of course, yeah, please. So Halo 2600 was what really connected me into the retro community, and then I started to do different talks at retro conferences and things like that and that kind of got me into arcade collecting and uh and i started by um buying a uh computer space that was completely broken the very first arcade video game and then repairing it and i wrote a uh, kind of a long story about it and, and uh you can read it on edfreeze.wordpress.com that's my blog yeah and on that blog you can read about other uh, my other adventures in sort of uh, arcade, early arcade archaeology and repair. Um, well, I'll put that in the show notes if you want, Ed, so people can click through. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll be checking out 100%. What, what arcades do you own, if you don't mind asking? And other arcades. So most of my stuff is is super early uh, Atari stuff. So um, I have so actually Computer Space was done by Nutting Associates. Uh, that was the first place Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney worked um, yeah. and put out the very first arcade video game. Then they left and started Atari. Yeah. And so I, ha- I have a Pong. I have a Space Race. I have I wrote a bunch about Grand Track 10. And I just, I'm just finishing a, a Quack a Restoration, the first light gun game. It's basically the game Nintendo imitated 10 years later when they did Duck Hunt. Yeah, yeah. Pin pong, anti-aircraft, breakout. So I have all these early. Basically, I I mostly try to collect in the pre-microprocessor area, so yeah. before before computers came in. Uh, but I have a few other other kind of interesting things. I have some vectors, like a um, vector. I have a few vector beam, uh, which is a super rare vector arcade line. Uh, I have a. a, a um, <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, so I have a vector beam space war. Yeah. Um, and then I, I have their vector beam racing game as well. Um, so I don't know. So I have a, probably like twenty or so. That's amazing. Oh, you, Ed, man, you've really. Oh, it's incredible. You, I love how you're so involved in the retro scene right now. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It, uh, as you know, we're massive fans as well. So thank you so much for you know doing doing your part. Of, you know, definitely. You know, yeah, I just my whole life has been games has been a big part of uh, what I do for fun, and when I yeah. can do it for work too, it's it's awesome. And so, yeah, I love being involved with it, and I love being part of the community and doing what I can to to give back to the community and help yeah. out. A true gentleman. Well, we've got one final question, a bit of a random one. Um, I don't know if you've been asked this before, but if you could share a few drinks with a video game character, any one of your choice, who would you choose and why? <laughs> I, 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 I gotta go. Uh, I guess with the Master Chief, you know. <laughs> yeah. He, you know, just because the impact that my involvement with him has had on my life, you know, it's it's kind of a, a, a bad choice because he doesn't really talk. Um, <laughs> you know, it's only until recently I think they've had him say a few words. But it, you know, the Bungie guys really wanted him to not talk because. Mm-hmm they wanted you to sort of project yourself on him. And if he talked, it sort of, it makes it harder for you to imagine yourself as, as him. 
So maybe maybe having a drink with the master chief is kind of like looking in the mirror and talking to yourself. But wow, I do that's that all great, the time. So that's <laughs> a great a little bit like Link as well because Link obviously doesn't talk. So <laughs> that'd be a great pair, wouldn't those two? There you uh, go. Um, Ed, thank you. You're a real, real gentleman. It's been a real honor and a real pleasure having you on the RK Attack podcast. So thank you so much. Thanks. I had a great time. Take it easy, man. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else, you can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK, at Keith Barlow82, and at Arcade underscore Adriano. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcade Attack UK. Please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top 10, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes, where you can also leave us a review and a rating, which we would really, really appreciate. So until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.